They should win the game. They get a point. We, we scored a perfectly good goal. Make it 2-0. Game's done, done dusted. We win the game. Officials cost us two points today. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. And Shakiri hasn't he the funniest shape. He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. It's a joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly they need help. Clearly we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke. Well, he's at the wheel, but after another dismal display at the weekend against the below pair West Ham, the wheel is starting to veer once again, and the microscope is very much on the baby-faced assassin who had been given the job for keeps after initial injection of life when he first took over the job last September, December. I've kicked notorious United haters Phil and Keane to the curb for this week's podcast and gotten some subject matter experts in Enda Higgins and Chris Winterburn on the case for a full no-holds-barred lowdown of the club that has just announced record revenues. How are you, lads? Uh, well, after listening to that investor call, I've been feeling a bit more energetic than I have today, <laughs> but other than that, I can't complain. Yeah, still a bit shook after that first half on Sunday, but uh, yeah, all right, <laughs> slowly recovering. Um, so I suppose before uh, we get into the nitty gritty of the earnings call and uh, that performance on Sunday, um, will you'll probably appease me for a few minutes and talk about uh, Liverpool's two-one win over Chelsea. So Liverpool have come a long way in terms of their top four competitors in that despite winning, they seem to have come out of this game with a, a little bit more negativity surrounding their performance than Chelsea really have, who are kind of riding the Frank Lampard project with full gusto at the moment, despite some mixed results uh, over the past couple of weeks. And uh, what did you make of this one? Yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting game. I can understand why there's a tiny bit of negativity around you know Liverpool's performance, because especially in the second half, you're just not used to being seeing the midfield overrun as much as it was but um, overall I, I still think um, they're the team to beat this this season um, ver- very good in the first half um, I, I suppose the issues are they've had no clean sheets this season um, and they appear to be playing a slightly higher line um, and are being a bit more overrun than we'd usually see from Liverpool Um but overall, I think um, you know it's still still a great great performance and a great victory uh, away to Chelsea. Yeah. That's true, and I suppose kind of it's been ingrained over the last couple of years for Liverpool fans, especially that we haven't been particularly good away from home against against kind of top four sides, and to go and actually beat Chelsea in Stamford Bridge, and then to kind of come away from that, and people are kind of uh, not really slating the performance, but saying you know, geez, that could have been a lot better. Um, but definitely there was some I thought there was some a lot of positivity coming out of that especially the, um, uh, Alexander Arnold's goal um, really kind of sh- lit things up um, we seem to be a scorer of good goals against Chelsea over the past couple of years um, Chris can you see Liverpool maintaining that kind of form six wins from six now I think they probably will. I don't think, other than City, I've not seen a team in the Premier League this year that's anywhere close to the level Liverpool are playing. The only thing that's going to hurt Liverpool is maybe injuries to one of the front three. Other than that, I just can't I can't see any team giving them too many problems. Um, that's true. And I mean, I think Firmino especially has been performing well above expectations so far this year. I think Salah's been quite, kind of quiet. Um, and Manny, he, he flew out of the traps in that first game despite only coming um, 
just coming back from the African nations, but it it is quite in in, in that front three in terms of uh, in terms of replacements coming off the bench. Chelsea, then on the other hand, I mean, we spoke about it on the podcast now over the past couple of weeks. They're really going with the with that youthfulness. Tammy Abraham and, and Mason Mount, especially, have looked really good. Um, are they? How, what, Chris, how do you feel about Chelsea fans kind of praising Lampard and the performance? But when you look at the the results, then hasn't been very good. I think they're right too. To be honest, I think the defence was always going to be a problem when they couldn't uh, recruit. I think a lot of the players in that defence are a disaster. So until they can recruit again, that's going to stay the same. I don't think the defence is going to improve. But going forward this season, I think Chelsea have been as good as they've been uh, for a long time. Tammy Abraham's fantastic. It's amazing to think it's taken him this long and just good fortune for him to get his chance at Chelsea, but he's taken it. And I just think he gives them something different that they've not had up front since maybe Drogba, obviously with the exception of Diego Costa. But I just, to be honest, other than the results, which are going to be up and down with that defence, I don't really see the much to complain about for Chelsea. I think the front play is sorted and once they can bring defenders in, I think they'll be a much better side. Yeah, I think... um... It's kind of a, a, almost a credit to Lampard in a way that, you know, they've conceded so many goals already. They've lost their first Champions League match. Uh, they have the same points as United, and yet it doesn't feel like the walls are closing in on them in the same way as it does for Oli and United. I think there's a, an awful lot to build on. Kante's come back now, um, which is a huge influence on the team. I thought he was absolutely brilliant on Sunday, especially in that second half. Um, and I think they have a lot to work with, uh, especially when you consider that Pulisic hasn't really settled yet as well. Um, I, I, I think, you know, it'll be a tough season for them still, um, but I, I don't see too much negativity towards Lampard or Chelsea this season in terms of, you know, where they're going and how they're trying to play. Um, you can kind of see a style um, developing under Lampard that they've mm. not really had before. Um, as I said, I mean... Abraham and Mount in particular have, have looked really, really good this season. Um, so I, I think there's a lot to be positive about for Chelsea, certainly compared to the clubs they're competing with for top four and, and obviously in in other competitions as well. But you've got to remember, though, in that first game at Old Trafford, Chelsea really should have been 2-0 up before United even got going. The pressing game of Chelsea really caused... United trouble so the, the, the style of play is there I think it's just sort of bad defending and bad luck has gone against Chelsea this season Yeah and, and they've Ruben lost his cheek out as well which is you know, a, a huge loss um, so when he comes back I think he'll, he'll add another dimension to them as well so I, I think there's, there is a lot to be positive about at Chelsea even though you know at the rate they're conceding, they're actually on course to concede over 70 goals this season, <laughs> which uh, <clears throat> isn't ideal. And, um, you know, even the Valencia match, um, you know, to miss the penalty, and they'd, they'd, they had the best chances in the game as well. There's a lot of games where Chelsea would look at that, um, the draw against Leicester, the draw against Sheffield United, and think that they probably should have won those games. You know, so it's 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 not the doom and gloom that, um, you know, other people might perceive it to be. And I think overall with the transfer ban in place at the moment. Um, I think that there's a lot to be positive about for Chelsea going forward. Do you remember a couple of years ago? Sorry. So to, to, do you remember a couple of years ago? I think it was Klopp's first, like, he had three quarters of a season after he came for Brendan Rodgers. 
And it was a bit similar. You could see the way they were trying to play, but they were getting yeah. some poor results. The defence was awful, and they kept hitting the bar and the post, and those were the sort of things that were going <laughs> against them. I really see similar things. Obviously, we've got to wait to see how they recruit once the transfer ban's over, like you said. But I, I, I see a lot of positives in this Chelsea side, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I suppose, I know we'll get onto it later on, but you know the differences between where they're going and where United are going, just in terms of style and how the matches are playing out, um, you know, there's there's far more to be positive about at the moment for Chelsea. Um, they've been quite unlucky in almost all their games this season, um, and I think you know once that turns in their favour, I, I I actually think that they'll, they'll probably sneak top four this season. Um, you know, compared to United, and even Spurs are looking to struggle at the moment, and Pochettino looks a bit jaded to be honest. Um, whereas I think Chelsea. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think the Spurs cycle might be coming to an end a bit under Pochettino, to be honest. Um, whereas with Chelsea, I, I think you know they're going in the right direction. Um, and there's a lot more for the fans to be positive about than there was maybe even under Sarri, for example. He um, was quite stubborn. It's an interesting one because in the, I think Chelsea were probably earmarked as the most likely to drop out of the top four, giving all the issues with the transfer ban and Sarri leaving and, and having to rely on these young players. And on the other hand, then the amount of goodwill that Lampard seems to have been afforded now at this point, where he's basically been given a free a free shot this year. You know, there's no expectation whatsoever. And not only for Chelsea fans seeing these kind of crop of young English players come through, but from an English national team standpoint, it, it must be really exciting to see the likes of Mount and Abraham kind of come to the fore and been playing uh, you know, top four, top six level football week in, week out. Yeah, and, and Tomori who's come in as well in, in recent weeks um, seemed to have had an impact. So um, certainly from an England and Chelsea perspective, there's, there's a lot to be positive out there. Um, now, again, the amount of goals they're conceding mm. is, is still a huge concern. But I, I do think Conte coming back, um, and they were kind of hit with a couple of sucker punches there at the weekend. Um, the Alexander finish uh, in particular was phenomenal. Um, I know we only briefly spoke about Liverpool, but um, mm. you know he's an absolutely phenomenal player. Um, and then the Firmino goal came right after the disallowed offside goal. So it was tough to take. If you look at the chances they had near the end, the Bashuai header, the Mount chance. Both of those, you know, on another day should be taken. And, you know, like Chris was saying earlier, those are the type of things we were seeing early days with Liverpool and Klopp where you'd look back and think, you know, they should have had different results. Um, and I think that's what you're seeing with Chelsea at the moment. Whereas you look at, you know, teams around them, you know, Spurs' performances, you know, against Newcastle at home, against Leicester away, weren't great. Um, uh, Leicester you know, up and down. Um, Everton, who were, and Wolves, who people tipped to be challenging for that top six, mm-hmm. maybe even potentially top four there. They're having their own problems. Um, so I think, you know, there, there's plenty to be positive about for Chelsea at the moment. There's a lot in their favour. Whether they'll get through that Champions League group or not now after that first result is, is yeah. you know, potentially an issue. But um, we'll have to see how they go. They played quite well against Valencia, to be honest. Uh, the Barkley penalty was <laughs> um, <laughs> a 
a bit of a disaster for them really looking back and, and how they handled that post game as well. <clears throat> I'm firmly of the opinion that there's no way Barkley would be first choice penalty yeah. taker at Chelsea considering he's not starting for them at the moment and he's not taking a competitive penalty with, since um, 2016, I think. Sorry, Kevin. Um, especially with uh, Jorginho on the pitch. Yeah, Jorginho. Yeah. I was I was looking up last week. I think his record across Chelsea and Napoli is thirteen out of fourteen or something like that. So, uh, you know, I, I think they tried to <laughs> do some damage control post game, especially after seeing the way the media reacted to um, Ollie honestly saying he doesn't know which one of them is going to take the penalty on the pitch, which is not ideal for any manager or club. Um, so. And it's also put them in this weird situation now. If they win a penalty and Barkley's on the pitch, he has to take it. <laughs> um, so uh, that aside, though, um, you know there is a lot, lot um, to be positive about. Chris, I'm, I'm I'm conscious not to go down the the very wormhole now at this point, and we've been kind of tiptoeing around the subject over the past couple of weeks on the podcast, and it's it's been so controversial and. There's been a couple of more instances this weekend, and I suppose focusing on Chelsea's uh, disallowed goal. Um, I forget now who was called for offside, but it was a good bit before the actual goal. And again, uh, William, I think it was it William. Yeah, I, and I thought, I mean, I thought it was uh, Mason Mount. Um, oh, was it was the one on the left? Yeah, could have been Mason Mount. <laughs> could have been Mount. Um, Aspilicueta scored the goal and. Celebrations went on for probably 30 plus seconds before everyone realised that there was a review and that it was going to get called back. I mean, I mean, are you pro VAR? Are you are you anti VAR? Or do you think there's still a few kinks to iron out? I'm really pro VAR when it's used like it was in the World Cup. I can't understand why the Premier League started using this system a year after the World Cup. So they've had a year to do what? To figure out a system of their own which is works less efficiently, is less inclusive for people in the ground and watching on TV and works less well because we've seen some absolutely horrific decisions. So whilst I have some sympathy with the one, the ones we've seen this weekend, I think Spurs' offside goal... It was offside by an, an armpit. So whilst the rule was right and he was technically offside, I do think that that rule was in with the game before VAR. You've got to change the rules to adapt with VAR. That's one of the problems we're seeing. But the way the actual Premier League has, adapted, has adopted VAR and the way they're using it this season has just been really poor. Yeah, what the Premier League reminds me of this season is... Um... Uh, the A-League in Australia are actually one of the first leagues in the world to implement it and there was a huge amount of mistakes made <laughs> and there still is in Australia actually um, in terms of you know when the referee looks at the screen when he doesn't you know offside calls that people are arguing against and I see a lot of that now in the Premier League um, I suppose it it's tough when the offside is a millimetre or so um, yeah. And it reminds me of a goal last season uh, Leon Gretzka scored for Bayern against Orby Leipzig. And, you know, still to this day, I'll argue that, it, you know, it shouldn't have been given offside. But yes, there must have been a three or four minute review looking at this literally half a millimetre um, situation. And then a lot of people have, you know, uh, argue about this clear and obvious error, but that actually doesn't apply to offside. <laughs> um <laughs> So that's kind of been dragged into the debate when it really shouldn't be offside is either offside or it's not. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of the things we see like this. 
whilst, as I said, the it might be harsh, it's still right that the goals we've seen chalked off offside have been given offside. But how are we in a situation now where it's not been made clear, like, they only get a certain amount of chances to look at the screen referees within a game, so none of them are choosing to do it. And and no one, uh, the VAR team in the Bouvam sort of overruling the decision made by, well, it's probably the mate, isn't it? Let's, let's not cover yeah. it up. These, these guys are all going to be close. They're not willing to overrule. I think that's one of the key things back in the World Cup, that the VAR team was a completely separate nationality to the mm. on-field offici- officiating team. I just think it's been so shoddily implemented. Like Even back to the first couple of games of the season, I don't know, Ender, if you'll remember this, but near the end of the United Wolves game, there was an instance where United had a chance going forward, and I think Martial was played through and he was given offside, fine, and the, and, and the flag went up and the whistle went, but then you look back at the replay, Martial's three yards onside, so where's the, the situation where linesmen are told only put your flag up when it's clearly offside? Well, it's just these things that just have really, really annoyed fans this year. And there's no need for it either. They should have just copied the system at the World Cup. Okay, rant over about that. <laughs> yeah, actually, that um, the linesman offside thing is really interesting, actually, because I watched the game at the weekend, um, Atletico Madrid, and in the second half, I don't know who the linesman was, but he flagged three or four times, and every time it was onside. But clearly, this is a stubborn linesman, you know, <laughs> and he thinks it's offside. And once the flag goes up, that rules out VAR, you know, play stops and referee blows the free kick is given and whether it was onside or offside you know the free kick is given um but Italy in particular um have been very good at keeping their flag down you know let the chance develop and then they put it up after whether you know it's a goal or not Portugal have improved in that as well um but I do feel in England and Spain you do get a lot of these stubborn linesmen who just decide on the spot that it was actually offside when it was actually very close Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's one problem I have with it. The other problem I have with it is um, I actually wouldn't tell the referee to check any screen at all. I'd leave it totally up to the VAR guys when it comes to um, you know penalties or red cards. You know because when you have the VAR team saying to the referee, "I think you need to look at this," it still puts a lot of pressure on the referee at that moment in the stadium. You have teams in his ear. Yeah, you can see. You've, we've actually seen examples where the referee looks at the screen, walks away, and goes back and looks at it again because he's not 100% sure. And, you know, it just kind of, in, in high-pressure moments, I think you're better off having the VAR guy saying, sorry, you need to overturn your decision. It's a penalty, you know. And then whether people agree with it or not, that debate can happen after. Whereas this frustration of fans seeing a referee run over to a, you know, Fisher Price screen at the side of the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> you've subs, you've managers in his ear, you've people not knowing what's yeah. going on. Whereas at least if the VAR, I mean, sorry, go on. I mean, like I, I thought the way they styled it in the World Cup, like you said, with the referee jogging over to the sideline. I mean, if you had that on the sideline of say a Merseyside derby, and you have an extremely hostile atmosphere, and you have extremely hostile crowd, and you are expecting the referee to be able to make a judgment on the side of the field. Isn't actually really going to work in that kind of way in the Premier League? I don't think. Yeah, it just puts huge pressure on the referee in that moment. It's you are you are leaving all the responsibility onto him, even though you know the VR guys are in a you know comfortable booth or room it, wherever they are, <laughs> miles away. Do any do any of the other leagues have that style where the Referee himself actually has to review the footage. 
Yeah, yeah. For for penalties and red cards, I think nearly every league has the same format where. You know, if there's doubt, they tell the referee to come over and have a look at the screen. For offsides, they don't have to. Right. Although I, I did see one last year, um, Atletico Madrid, I think it was against Villarreal at home, where uh, Godin scored, he was given offside, and then they told the ref to come over and have a look at it, and he gave it onside then. But that that's not something you see often, and I, I don't think that's the way the rules should be implemented either. Um, but again, the, yeah, th- there's a lot of work to be done in VAR. I think overall is, it's yeah. a good thing. but It's getting there. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's slowly. Yeah, slowly. <laughs> I think I think this will go on um, for at least another couple of years, anyways. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think a lot of people's frustration is simply with the graphics people and how there's no real kind of explanation that offside is offside, and there's no there's no there shouldn't be a grey area, regardless of how small these television producers are, are showing the the line between uh, attacker and defender, and that's kind of getting people riled up. Yeah, well, as Chris said earlier as well, overruling your mate seems to be a big problem in the Premier League. I mean, the Telemans red card against Wolves, I mean, yeah. you won't see a more obvious one than that this season as far as I'm concerned. You know, whatever about the Martia penalty against Crystal Palace, potentially debatable, the same with the Gary Cahill red card. But, I mean, Telemans had to go for that. Referee gave it a yellow card, VAR didn't intervene. I mean, I just, I just don't know how you, you can explain that without yeah. somebody not wanting to overrule the on, on-field referee, you know. We'll probably park VAR for there for, for, for this week. Um, I'm sure there's going to be plenty more said about it over the next weeks and months of the season. Um, Chris, the other big result, I suppose, this weekend was City's absolutely thumping um, 8-0 of Watford. Um, and a lot of people are still kind of on, of the opinion that City will eventually catch Liverpool or at least kind of draw back that five-point deficit slowly but surely. Um, was that a sign of things to come? I mean, they were coming off uh, a loss to Norwich and it really looks like they, uh, they used Watford as, uh, as their punching bag there. They did. And I think one of the problems that other teams are going to have is that Manchester, and they have had for the last two years, Manchester City are so good. They are the best team in the Premier League by... Not a distance, because Liverpool have done extremely well, but I think they're significantly better than Liverpool. It's just Liverpool seem to play better against them. So I think the title probably will come down to those games between the two sides. But Watford, for as, obviously any side that gets beat 8-0 has not played well, but they were torn apart by a team that was really, really on it on Saturday. I don't think Watford, maybe they could have been a couple of levels better performance-wise and maybe only lost 5-0, but I think... City were just in that sort of mood on Saturday. And they've got the players to do it as well. That's one of the things that other teams don't have. that just the, the attacking players to take a team apart. You don't see that often in the Premier League. I mean, the mad thing about it was um, Sterling didn't even come off the bench, which is kind of... <laughs> kind of highlights just the quality that they have in, a, in, a, in a attacking areas. Yeah, ruined the fantasy Wonderly. football anyways, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they won the league last year and De Bruyne missed a large majority of the season. It is amazing. And I think the the, um, the starting eleven for, for the best that was announced just not to have any Manchester City players, I think, obviously, to, you know, you could you, you can argue all night long about who should have been there, but there surely should have been perhaps, you know, starting or Bernardo Silva in there considering how performed especially this or the, the the first half of 2019 well this is one of the things i was thinking again every year we get into this debate 
and it's because nothing's ever clarified. Is it the best players award or is it the best performing player in 2019? Because if you're going to ask me, is Luka Modric a better footballer than Bernardo Silva? I'm going to say, yeah, he is. But if I'm going to, if I'm asked who had the better 2019 and who should be in a team of this year, Bernardo Silva or Modric, I'm going to pick Bernardo Silva. So it's just about, we've got to clarify the criteria because it seems as if they just change from position to position, whether they're choosing the best player or the best performing player. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a mess, really, <laughs> to be honest, with the three Real Madrid guys, Ramos, uh, Marcelo and Luka Modric. I mean, Marcelo um, wasn't even in the side at the back end of last season. No. Um, and he, I mean, he, even Ronaldo, I think he got 21 goals in Serie A last season. Uh, Quagliarella got 26. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> it's it, it's just a bit mad, really. And it just seems to be this, you know, I don't, I don't know who... who who votes for these things, but it just seems to be this popularity contest every yeah. season. I mean, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have definitely had Bernardo Silva in there, not just for what he's done with City, but, you know, how much he's improved with Portugal in the last 12 to 18 months. I mean, this was a guy who Santos didn't trust, <clears throat> you know, going into the World Cup for Portugal, and now he's, you know, just as important to them as Ronaldo is, um, as we saw in the Nations Cup and, and in their recent European qualifiers. Um, and now uh, I'd argue he's, Probably Pep's most important player still. Yeah. Um, especially with you know David Silva leaving at the end of this season, mm-hmm. um, and De Bruyne taking up kind of this more you know right hand side midfielder type of role. Uh, everything centrally goes through Bernardo Silva now, which is essential for you know a Guardiola team. So uh, I'd have had him in for sure. Um, and you know. I mean, Marcelo and Ramos, I just, you just can't make a case for, for either of them, I'm afraid. And for Modric, he still looks knackered after the World Cup, to be honest. Um, uh, you know, struggled badly for Madrid last season, struggled badly in, you know, Croatia's Azerbaijan draw. Um, so I, I just don't see how you can make a case for, for, you know, half that team. But, you know, that seems to be the way it goes. Um, back to City, I suppose, from a Premier League standpoint, um, I'm sure they'll quickly forget about uh, whatever awards are, are coming in the door there. But um, they obviously lost to Norwich last week and, and recovered pretty emphatically against Watford. Do you, Enda, do you see them kind of continuing that sort of form and, and maybe the Norwich game was a wake-up call? Um, I suppose kind of the highlight was the fact that They've lost Laporte and now they've lost John Stones. Um, having lost, already lost um, Vincent Company in the summer, um, who left on a free. Is there a potential for more kind of trip ups, or do you think that uh, that's it going to be and, and, and it'll be back to a two horse race with Liverpool? No, well, I mean, it's, it was a two horse race before it started anyway. Um, I think. I think they'll just about manage to keep in touch with Liverpool for the next few months, whether they bring in somebody in January or not. I saw they they were potentially linked with Ruben Diaz this week from Benfica, but you're looking at another fifty to sixty million euro there. Um, you know, you're pretty much hoping that Fernandinho, who you know, I think he turns thirty five this year, uh, you're basically hoping that he can, you know. Um, cover at centre back for them like, yeah, the next there. for the next few months. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few more results like the Norwich one. There won't be many, um, but 
you know, it all depends on, on whether Liverpool can keep winning, really, for City. Um, you know, Liverpool are entering a, 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 tr- a tricky run of games. Chelsea was was the start of it. They obviously need to need to win their next few Champions League games. Um, they're going to Old Trafford in a few weeks, which is an important should be, game for them. Should be an easy three points. <laughs> <laughs> you would think so, but, uh, you know, it's the type of game that's, you know, two nil-nils there in the last couple of seasons. Mm. Uh, sorry, um it was nil-nil there in the last couple of seasons, wasn't it? I think uh, it was a one. There was a one-all. Um, I might be going back a bit far. Ibrahimovic scored a late equaliser. That might be going back too far. Yeah, though. that's that's going back a few years. Um, then they won two-one, um, and I think. Uh, sorry. So the last three results for Liverpool there are yeah a one-all draw, a two-one win for United, and a one-one draw last season. Or, sorry, nil-all draw last season. So, uh, Klopp. Really need to win at Old Trafford. He's not had one since the Europa League um, a long time ago, back in the Van Hal days. So it'll be interesting to see how they manage those type of games. But I think Liverpool are, are better set to win those type of games this season, as we saw with the Chelsea match. Um, so I think um, City will be able to keep in touch with them until yeah. January at least. But it'll be interesting to see if they actually go into the transfer market. Um, I saw Pep saying that you know they couldn't afford Harry Maguire whether they're worried about FFP or not. Um, that might appear to be the case. Um, but I, I think they'll be okay for now, but um, there won't be too many 8 nils coming up. I don't think <laughs> so moving on to, um, to all things Manchester United, um, and, and today I suppose Ed Woodward revealed the record revenues for the club. I think it was £627 million was, was the figure reported. Um the timing, I suppose, was a bit unfortunate given the result of the weekend. Um, and as big a business football has become, strong balance sheets won't really put points on the table. Um, and if anything, it kind of further illustrated the increasing chasm between the club on and off the field priorities. Chris, you were following the call. Was there any mention of football or was it purely uh, was it purely figures? It was a lot of mention of figures. The football briefly came into it at the start. It was almost like Ed Woodward gave a statement at the start just to sort of placate the people who wanted football to be mentioned. He just sort of garbled out a long list of things that was clearly written on a sheet of paper by his assistant to mention about how there's been investment in the youth academy and and other things. But other than that, it was mainly about the figures until the question and answer section where somebody asked what a play alone was. I think that says that all, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, investors are going <laughs> to... Unfortunately, they're not really people who are too interested in football, but yeah, that mm. was a particularly depressing moment. Uh, one of many on the call, I think. Um, the other was when they you know, talked about how much uh, social media interaction you get from transfer rumours, which, um, you know, is not really what it's all about <laughs> at the moment. Before they mentioned about how the transfer rumours um, sort of help engagements on social media, was I think the term Richard Arnold used. But um, they also said something, Edward would say something about the director of football pursuit, if we want to call it that. It might be the least pursuit like pursuit there's ever been. But he <laughs> said shortly after Mourinho's last summer at the club, I think that there was a, he likes to do these briefs to journalists who he's friendly with uh, after sort of negative things happen that keep him out of the the firing line. And he said that United were investigating 
this uh, director of football thing. And then just tellingly, about a month and a month and a half later, it, the term changed from director of football to technical director. And I think most people knew then that there wasn't going to be an appointment. And then today, um, Edward Wood said that the director of football, people looking from the outside think it's linked to recruitment, but uh, we're very happy with the way we're doing things and we believe that's the right way. So people who want a director of football, and it is absolutely the right way to go in 2019, if, and it's a very big if, Manchester United do hire one, it will likely not change anything. They'll still have to report to Ed Woodward, which sort of just adds another layer to the problem, even if it's... A, a, what many would see a forward step unless it's an actual forward step it just has another problem Yeah, I mean I think it's pretty clear that United have no interest in having a director of football, certainly involved on the transfer side, I mean if you think about it they they had Javier Rivalda at the club, you know, <laughs> who did a brilliant job for Juventus and he just left United and <laughs> so they had a guy there who would have been perfect for it uh, Monkey has changed roles recently who's considered one of the best around even if he did negotiate some horror deals for Roma in the past um, two years. Um, Morata has moved from Juventus to Inter. That was a huge move uh, for him. Um, and also, it's it's been reported that, you know, some very high-profile uh, candidates have let United be known that they would be happy to take the job. And Lewis Campos at Wales, I think. Yeah, yeah they've, they've let United know that they'd love the opportunity to at least apply for the job and most of them, you know, have been blocked on Woody's WhatsApp, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, Paul Mitchell as well. I think he'd be another good candidate who probably hasn't been approached. He, um, he's, um, you know, a really excellent <clears throat> candidate as well. So when you look at the amount of people who've been available um, in the past sort of 18 to 24 months who haven't even been spoken to, and then you, you get all these rumours of... You know, Darren Fletcher, Rio Ferdinand, you know, Van der Sar said recently he's no interest in, in being involved. Van der Sar would be a weird one anyways, considering Mark Overmars is actually the director of football at Ajax, not, <laughs> not Van der Sar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, Van der Sar does Ed Woodward's job at Ajax, so he's not going to hire someone. To yeah, do. exactly. The one, the one thing Ed Woodward's good at, he's not going to hire someone else to do. Yeah, so what, what, what always confuses me about Woodward's um, reluctance uh, on the role is... You know, whether you like the guy or not, he's brilliant at monetizing United for what they are, you know. You could put this guy in a deserted island and he'd find a sponsor somewhere. <laughs> so why would he not just want to focus on that and then let somebody else have the hassle of, you know, dealing with, you know, people like Raiola and all these guys every summer, every January, when it comes to negotiating transfers, contracts, you know, players moaning that they want to leave the club because I think he quite likes that I think for someone yeah. from a mathematics background who has no right to be in this football position if you look at his history let's be fair he was an accountant and he just happened to be at the right place at the right time to help the Glazers with the takeover and then he's been around long enough just so the fact that everyone else above him's left so he's been given this job <laughs> this is not someone who is qualified to do anything football related so why would you put yourself in his shoes if so i'm sure none of us three have ever been professional footballers <laughs> so you put yourself in that position of getting to deal with footballers agents if that's not your world of course you're going to enjoy it and i think he enjoys it to the degree where he's blind to his own failings and another point that was just the end of briefly brought up before i've just been looking at the um 
the numbers Sevilla did this summer, Manchi's first summer back then, they brought in 14 players in one summer. And yeah, the fees for a lot of them weren't major, but do you think the Glazers are going to be happy to see that sort of level of turnover, which some could argue would be needed at United if they did hire a director of football and a competent one at that to come in and say, OK, we need to totally rip this squad up and start again and it can mean we've seen it's possible. Severe have done it in one window. Obviously, quality of players is different because United will be expected to to buy maybe higher quality. But 14 players in in one summer and a lot of players out. Whereas at the minute, Manchester United struggle to do more than one deal at a time because they've only got two people working on everything. So there must be a reason for that. And I don't think there'd be any sort of interest, as Andrew said, in hiring a director of football because he might want to bring 14 players in. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, you know, he enjoys probably, you know, dealing with the agents and all that, but when he sees how he's viewed now <laughs> amongst fans and just the abuse and hatred towards him, and as we know, he follows what's going on on social media because he brings it up in every investor's call, so he must know. But do you um, think he does know? Do you think he just gets told by someone how well they're doing because I don't think I think he is very shielded from the criticism of him because he's perfected that look on camera whenever we see him of when United are having a bad result and the camera pans to him he's perfected that look of having absolutely no responsibility and that faux furiousness at the result when in actual fact he's the major reason why that result's happened so he's perfected that I, I think he's completely obl- oblivious to how criticised he is people around him aren't going to tell him. And you've got to ask, he's not going to meet many people out and about who are going to say anything to him, critical of him. I think he's very shielded from how disliked he is amongst the fan base who go to games. All right, well, they're doing a phenomenal job, so who's ever uh, <laughs> is shielding him from nothing. You know, talking about uh, he's perfected the look, I mean, it is uncanny how every time the camera's on him, he has that stern face, anger, you know, hands on hips, as if you- he's, he's completely oblivious to the fact that you know, United might actually struggle in a match, you know, so, um, you know, it's, it's it's quite an achievement. Do you lads um, buy into the, the lip reading that uh, you've supposedly caught with Phil Jones or do you, do you think, uh, do you think that's a bit some fake news there? No, I think that's, uh, I think that was a joke that a few <laughs> papers have just taken. It doesn't even look like he's speaking to uh, Phil Jones. He's not the press officer, United's press officer, who's actually sat next to Jones. There's another shot where it actually shows her, and I think he's talking to her. Yeah, um, I actually tweeted at the time, it looks like he's saying, have you got the balls? Shut up. Um, (laughs) As opposed to just whatever he actually, you know, Daily Mail said they reached out to a professional lip reader. I, I, (laughs) I, I don't believe that either. So it doesn't look like he's even speaking to Phil Jones. It's just kind of a bit of a coincidence that Jones muttered something at that moment where mm-hmm. Woodward turned around. You can see just by the angle he's talking to somebody, you know, yeah. seats across, you know. But, um, you know, that's the drama at least. You know, There you go. It does. Fair play to whoever caught it, because in the, in the original clip that was going around, it, it, did, uh, it did certainly look like it. Um, I suppose focusing on the game at the weekend... And what struck me, maybe aside from Declan Rice, who I suppose frustratingly for Irish folk looking, looks to be getting better and better all the time. I mean, West Ham were, were quite average, but somehow came away with a comfortable 2 0 win. Um, I mean, and the, these type of games seem to be coming a bit more common occurrence for United. What went wrong on, on, on Sunday? Um, 
it's it's not that I expected United to win when you see the lineups, but the approach in the first half in particular um, was unbelievable, really. Just the lack of energy from anybody. Um, there was one moment where Ashley Young hit in a free kick and Maguire looked like he was about to make a run and just stood there and <laughs> you just it was just bizarre, you know. It was just nobody had any energy and considering nine of them didn't play in the Europa League and considering that United's previous match had been a, a home game against Leicester where, you know, it wasn't a, a physically difficult match. Um, Leicester had more of the ball, obviously, but th- there just seemed to be no reason as to as to why United would struggle in terms of lacking that much energy. Rashford looked, you know, injured from the start, really. And I wasn't too surprised he went off. Um, so just the whole approach from the very start. They actually didn't play that bad in the second half. But, you know, as I said on Twitter at the time, we were all, we all had so much PTSD from how bad the first half was that we actually <laughs> ignored how OK the second half was. You know, Mata definitely should have scored. Maguire should have scored. West Ham didn't really create anything until the free kick. So it's it frustrating. Yeah, Ashley Young's tackle was, was horrible. But, you know, um, actually, you know, thought De Gea maybe could have done a bit better, although it was a good free kick. Um, so it's really frustrating to see that West Ham actually didn't play that well. You know, Fornals couldn't really get on the ball. Felipe Anderson couldn't get past Wambasaka. Then Wambasaka moved to the left hand side for a brief period to stop Yarmolenko. Then when he moved back, they scored, obviously, <laughs> which sums up United. Um, but uh, the midfield is a huge issue. Um, you know, there was a period where Maguire played three very good passes into midfield and all of them were sent back to him straight away. Um, and you talk about Declan Rice. Um, I don't think he'll have an easier game than he did um, against the midfield of Matic in particular and McTominay than he did on Sunday. Um and just yeah, and the subs then obviously had to bring on Lingard up front when Rashford went off injured, but then bringing on Gomez with ten minutes left left and playing him on the left hand side just kind of sums up, you know, Solskjaer and where he's at with his subs at the moment. Um so it was just it was just a horrible, horrible game really for from a United perspective. Yeah, I, I can't um, can't disagree with any of that. I suppose with the the of injuries recently, um hasn't helped matters you're missing Martial who got off to a fairly good start um, at the beginning of the season um, and Pogba obviously leaves a huge hole in the middle of the field um, where I mean if you do have a full strength team and obviously you are still quite light in attacking areas having not signed um, anyone to replace the void of, of Lukaku or, or Sanchez is, is is there anything he can do differently, perhaps in the setup or in the tactics, just to get something a little bit better out of him performance-wise? It's difficult to say, to be honest, because there's not that many options. Lingard up front on his own from a start of a game, if you have a defined system to get that to work, might be of some benefit. But there's an, it's not even like last season where they could have put Fellaini up front on his own. And just fired it long for maybe a half. It's difficult to see what options he's got there. I think one thing to say is he was unlucky because the plan was to play Greenwood on Sunday and then he was out with an illness. I think that was one of maybe Rashford would have been wide or on the bench on Sunday, so he wouldn't have had to do as much uh, running and maybe wouldn't have picked up that injury. So I think misfortune has sort of hit Solskjaer there with Greenwood's uh, illness. But again, it's poor recruitment. How 
letting Lukaku go when Sanchez go was absolutely the right move. The, the pair of them were not going to improve Manchester United or do any better than they had done already. But the fact that everyone knew Lukaku was going to eventually go to Italy, be that Juventus or Inter, and the fact that a replacement wasn't signed, and you can't really say it was a difficult window because you can look at players who were on the move. I mean, with Sam Ben Yedder, would he have been a bad alternate signing, your third-choice striker for a couple of years? I mean, it wasn't difficult to pick somebody up who could have helped United on Sunday at West Ham. But that's the situation the club are in now, the way they operate, and it's going to stay like that for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, I think it was an interesting summer in terms of uh, transfers because I, I, I don't think it was a summer where there was extortionate fees, you know, um, Haller was a great pickup for West Ham for around 40 million. Ben Yedder moved to Monaco, Slimani moved to Monaco. There was a lot, of, yeah. Fernandez was available from Sporting for about 50 million odd, and they were desperate for anybody really to come along. <laughs> but nobody's weird, nobody picked him up. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, the Fernandez thing, I, I don't get at all, to, to be brutally honest. Not just the fact that it wasn't United who went for him, I mean. Uh, if you look at how he's stepped up at Sporting since uh, Patricio, Carvalho, Martins all moved on, took over the captaincy, the amount of goals and assists he had last season, scored in the semi-final of the Cup, scored in the final of the Cup, scored in the penalty shootout of the Cup. Santos, the Portuguese manager, rates him extremely highly. He's trying to fit him into the Portugal setup along with you know Bernardo Silva, Guedes, Ronaldo, Joao Felix. Um, I do think he has, you know, he has flaws in terms of he tries a lot of difficult passes and therefore his pass percentage is very low and that's the message that came out of United that he takes too many risks but you know well a bit of risk wouldn't go yeah exactly that's <laughs> exactly it's... you know and he has you know he's he's taken over the captaincy of, of sporting since Patricio left and he's really Im- improved his game immensely in the past uh, two years compared to where we was at at Sampdoria and he's the perfect age as well so I was really surprised and if you look at his performance I don't know Kevin if you saw the uh, friendly against Liverpool in the summer but um, I've never I, seen anybody try harder <laughs> in a friendly than he did so he I knew he had to fight for a move yeah, yeah exactly I think he I think he was a guy who felt he was you know uh, potentially because he was being linked with uh, with Liverpool at the time yeah, and um, I think it was just paper talk more than anything. Yeah, well, Klopp was very complimentary of him after the match, but he said there's no way we can buy him at the moment because of, you know, obviously we just don't have the money. Um, so I, w- I was really surprised. Uh, but just going back to um, what United could do differently, I suppose uh, an issue I have is with Lindelof partnering with Maguire. I think they're quite similar in terms of you know, they both try to read the game very well. They both try to step ahead of the the striker and intercept as opposed to react. And the problem with Lindelof is he doesn't have the pace to recover. He doesn't win the ball in the air ahead of the striker enough, as, you know, Mourinho was actually talking about that before the game. And then he doesn't have the pace to recover. So I think that Terenzevi would be a much better balanced beside Maguire. Um, I think he's been excellent in his last two pre-seasons, even though obviously we can't judge United on pre-season because Pereira looks like a god every year. Um, <laughs> but even his spell at Villa, when he came back from injury after a long injury layoff last season, it's no surprise that Villa improved immensely when he came into centre-back beside Tyrone Mings. He had been played at right-back initially by Villa in his first season there. Um, 
so he's somebody I would definitely like to see involved a lot more. Um, I, I agree with that. One of the things, just to go, touch back on uh, the different options, well, in this period now where United aren't going to have a forward because Greenwood's ill, Rashford's injured, and we still don't know when Martial will be back, United could sort of, and again, this is going to set people make them absolutely livid because it's a throwback to the Van Hal days. But you make a good point about Lindelof and Maguire being a bit similar and neither one sort of having any great pace. But I still think they're the two best defenders at United and I think maybe you could play them two with two and Zebe in the middle of them and, and go for a back three. Obviously then you have a problem with wing-backs because Wan-Bissaka is a defensive specialist. He's not really offering anything in the other half of the field, which isn't a bad thing because United have had some atrocious defensive performances at right back in the last couple of years. So Wan-Bissaka is doing a brilliant job at the minute. But I just think in this period where you're lacking strikers, maybe pack the defence, you're obviously going to keep the ball a lot. You've got a quick defender there who's helping you to better defending defenders. And then maybe try and get something from your midfield as you play, maybe Pereira, Lingard. Gomez and, and Chong as well. Chong could start a game if you're looking for width. I just think there's options there whilst you've got no strikers. Yeah, I'd, like I said, the, the issue when you mention three at the back is everybody automatically thinks of, you know, Van Hal's first game <laughs> and first preseason, and, you know, they just can't handle that mentally. But, you know, where United are actually stacked for players at the moment is at centre back. Um, and if you were to play three at the back, whether it be you know, Lindelof, Twanzebe and Maguire, or I wouldn't be against even Wan-Bissaka playing as the right centre-back, essentially, and then two of the other three, you know, alongside him. Yeah, exactly. And then that can protect the midfield a little bit more. You know, you you can find a way to fit Pogba and McTominay, and then the wing-backs could be potentially Dallow and Shaw, which would suit both if you have three at the back. And then a front three, potentially, of Martial, Greenwood um, and James while Rashford is recovering. I think that would be a, a more interesting team, at least to see, than you know, a 4-2-3-1, which unfortunately um, the manager seems to be very stubborn about at the moment because he tried it in preseason, it worked in preseason, but you know, it just isn't working for United at the moment. It didn't work for Van Hal, it didn't really work for Mourinho. And yet here we are trying it again and failing at it again. So Listen, we don't have the answers, nobody does, but I think the manager is in a position where you're not going to win every league game every week anyway, so why not try and at least mix it up a little bit, as opposed to he's pretty stubborn on, on what his first eleven is at the moment, and then when he has to change that, it just doesn't seem to work. So why not try and mix it up a little bit more and, and you know stock up in positions where you actually have players fit and available who aren't... Um, a liability as opposed to you know playing a three-man midfield that just isn't working for United at the moment or playing trying to play a front four which United don't have enough players for at the moment so you know maybe even try it in the Europa League game see how it goes Mourinho actually did try it away in the Champions League and then played it away to Arsenal the following week and United were very open in both games but they did score I think seven goals across those two games and it worked quite well so he did it a couple more times as well Mourinho did it a couple more times but the problem with playing a back three in terms of centre-halves last season is you knew that because of the personnel there two of the three were going to be two players who you wouldn't necessarily want on the pitch in Jones and Smalling. So that was one of the problems. But now they've sort of got options where there's three centre-halves there who you think aren't going to sort of 
necessarily weaken United in um, to Nzebi, Maguire and Lindelof. So I think that's why it's something that Solskjaer should sort of look and maybe try, as you say, in one of the Europa League games. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's it's definitely not ideal and I, I'd be very opposed in general to playing three at the back <laughs> uh, because I do have nightmares about you know how LVG tried to bring it in at the start. Um, but if you look at that United squad, you know, it's the only position where they are actually a bit heavy at the moment at centre-back. It is a bit defensive, but it, it does play into this, um, you know, counter-attacking style that they we believe they want to implement because at the moment yeah. there's a belief that they're a counter-attacking team, but yet they're trying to press high and they're trying to win the ball back high up the pitch. Whereas, without buying a midfielder. So exactly. How do, you, how do you control the game without adding a midfielder? Exactly. So... It? It, it, it's all a bit wrong at the moment. You want to play, play a high press, but you want to be a, in a counter-attacking team as well. You know, why not You know, invite teams on um, and then try to hit them with pace on the counter, which United do have. Um, you did mention Chong earlier. I'd be highly concerned about giving Chong a, a sustained run at the moment. I do think he badly needs a loan. I think a lot of his senior appearances, even though there's only been a handful, have been a bit clumsy and he's he's trying very hard now when he doesn't have the composure of Greenwood and Gomez yet. And Chong is in this <clears throat> awkward situation where he's he's too good for the, you know, under twenty three second division, which basically United are in at the moment, but he's not good enough, I don't think, at the moment to be playing for the senior team. And he did have the opportunity, I think, to go to the Netherlands in the summer on loan. But United had to keep him because they're so short up front. But I'd love to see how he would go on loan. Um you know, I think Greenwood and Gomez technically are far better um, suited to where they're at at the moment compared to him. But, uh, you know, he'll, he'll get a few few games in the Europa League. He might start tomorrow night again against Rochdale. But uh, from what I've seen at the moment, I, I don't think he's ready. But, you know, we're pretty desperate. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, let's looking at your most recent transfer activity. And, I mean, the, the figure, I think, been thrown about eight hundred odd million since twenty thirteen, and it's kind of amassed a lot of a lot of dead wood over the past couple of years that are very much underperforming or in some cases not playing at all. But in terms of the summer transfers coming in, obviously you could have done with a couple of more transfers, but it seems to be so far so good. Um, from the bits I've seen of Daniel James, he looks very good in particular at only twenty one. You imagine there's going to be a huge amount of improvement. So there is kind of small growth of spurt that with this kind of this core of English youth that that seems to be uh, targeted, that there is a plan in place and there is young, good young players kind of being settled into the club. Yeah, I think the recruitment this summer was positive, in, not in terms of number, but in terms of the players uh, they got in. I think they've actually probably been United's three best performing players, particularly uh, Wan-Bissaka. But I think the problem is it just they left themselves light. Again, that's one of the problems with United in recent years is they always there's always a caveat. They always maybe do some things well and then they leave themselves massively short in one other area. And it's just an unfortunate cycle that's going to continue. But in terms of the summer uh, purchases, I think they were really good. And if they could have been supplemented with a, a midfielder who can pass it, maybe Fernandez. although I have my own doubts about him, just because I, I wonder if he'd be able to... A lot of his uh, positivity comes last year from his goals from centre midfield, but he's not going to be able to do the same thing in the Premier League. Or at least it's very unlikely. So you wonder whether 
he'd be able to have the same impact. But you look at any midfielder who can pass it. I think the player for me who would have been perfect for United would maybe have been Pjanic. Yeah, he lacks a bit of pace, but his passing's excellent. And McTominay doesn't lack pace. So you put Pogba and uh, McTominay ahead of, say, Pjanic or someone who can move the ball because Matic has sort of lost that ability as well. That was one of the things he was strongest at, moving the ball. I just think that was one area that they badly needed to get right in the summer and they neglected it. Yeah, I mean, you know, even before Pogba got injured, it would have been the biggest concern at United if he got injured. Who else is there to move the ball quickly? Um, You know, there was reports that they saw Longstaff as that player but (laughs) weren't willing to pay £50 which is fair enough, I suppose, but if you're not going to bring him in, you do need other options. And if you take Pogba out of that side at the moment, there just isn't anybody else who's going to move the ball forward even remotely quick enough. Garner can do it at under-23 level, um, but... Not you know, a good barometer not, at all. Exactly. You know, United are in basically the second division or the under-23 level, and they have a huge problem, whereas when they have all those players fit at that level... They're winning games 4 or 5 nil. They're struggling at the moment because players have stepped up to the senior squad and they have a lot of injuries and suspensions. And that's why they lost 4-1 last night. But that's, you know, and I go back to what I said about Chong earlier as well. I think he needed a loan because you're, they have players who are in that awkward phase of not being ready for the senior team and, and being too good for the under-23s. And that's why they're left with being so reliant on McTominay and Matic. Uh, Pereira, I mean, I... His his best spell came at Granada playing centre midfield and they got relegated. <laughs> he went to Valencia, he started well on the wing and then Guedes came in and that was basically, he was done there. And then he got injured, um, I think it was against Barcelona in the Cup when he was out for the season. I don't think he'd start for any half-decent team in the league or even in the championship, to be honest. Um, he, so... Uh, you know, they really did need another midfielder in the summer. Um, and that's, what's, that's that's really what's hurting them now, yeah. What's the story with Fred? Um, he's kind of the most high-profile player out of favour in terms of his transfer fee, and he doesn't seem to be getting a look in at all. I mean, does he just not fit the system, or is he just simply a very bad piece of business from day one? Uh, from my point of view, Fred's actually not been that much of a bad signing his, his passing needs work it, it lacks so much sharpness that it's untrue especially for a Premier League player but he's really energetic he's got a good shot on him and he hasn't really been given the games you've got to remember it took him a while last season to sort of bed into the side and then after Mourinho uh, left he never really got many chances and this season it's been the same obviously he shot himself in the foot deciding to get married or redo his vows or whatever because he, he knows well in advance when pre-season is. It's not as if he didn't have the financial clout to maybe move that forward. So he, he didn't do himself any favours there in terms of getting into the manager's eyeline and improving, but it looks like he's just not in Solskjaer's favour, which is bizarre because I think he's probably, if he gets a run of 10 games or so, you'd see a much better player there. And a player who can improve. I mean, people forget when Shakhtar played um, Manchester City a couple of years ago in the Champions League, Pep Guardiola was raving about him. He, he completely uh, ran that game from midfield. So there's a player there. And this is the thing with United. They sort of, when they do spend in recent years under the, the Woodward banner, they then don't really know what to do with the players. Mm-hmm. They buy a player and then don't know how best to use him or buy a player like Pogba. 
people, um, Pogba's Manchester United's best player. Let's not uh, debate that because it is pretty clear. But there is clear deficiencies in his game. When United play with Pogba in a two-man midfield, they're essentially playing with one and a half because he just does not defend. He can't in his own half. He he has absolutely nothing, nothing. But then. You have Fred, so why don't you play a midfield three with him and McTominay and then let Pogba be the one further up rather than Pogba be the one sitting deeper when that, that's not going to help anyone. So Fred, I think Fred's an unfortunate casualty of this United approach to recruitment. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting one, Fred. I mean, like you said, he was very influential at Schechter. Um Paolo Fonseca said at the time he thinks he could be one of the best midfielders in the world. Now this... Uh, he said that at a time when both United and City were bidding for him, so maybe that was just <laughs> uh, a bit of a coincidence. Um, the Brazil manager rated him very highly, he brought him into the World Cup squad, and he was unfortunate to get injured um, uh, just before the first World Cup game. He does look like somebody who would have the qualities that United need from midfield at the moment, which is he tries to move the ball quickly, box to box, he adds a lot of energy. I just feel it just just feels like he's trying too hard every time he plays. He seems to slip over a lot. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what footwear he has, but he just seems to fall over a lot. I thought he was, he was very good in Paris. In fairness, and I thought he was quite good in the Arsenal game a few days later. He was unlucky to give away the penalty, but it seems like for whatever reason, Solskjaer lost a lot of trust in him after those after that kind of positive spell. And then obviously the vows in the summer. It's it's funny. It appears that he thought he might be going to the Copa America with Brazil, so he had the vows laid in the summer to to counteract that. But as you said, once that it was apparent, I mean, he was never going to go to Copa America after the season he had. So he could have easily changed that. You know, if you, if <laughs> he really needs to be with United for the full preseason, um, and it, there just seems to be something drastically wrong behind the scenes. And I don't know if you remember Chris in that last preseason game uh, in Norway, he came on for the last fifteen or twenty minutes. And again, he was just this hectic, you know, ball of, you know, catastrophe, really. Again, <laughs> it was like the Brighton game where they lost 3-2, running into yeah. players, slipping over. And I, and I watched him that day and I thought, it really shouldn't be like this now in your second season, you know. And they're just, there, there must be something chronic behind the scenes because he has all the qualities that United need. Obviously, he needs big flaws as well, but, um, you know, came on against West Ham and created a couple of chances but again gave the ball away a lot but all, all United midfielders seem to struggle with that anyways so <laughs> it, it, it'd be worth they're going to have to trust him at some point um, he's got to get games he's got to yeah, have a exactly. run of games that's one of the, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that how he's almost like a, a ball of chaos when he comes on because he, he does only get these five ten minute spells I think it was a little bit longer on Sunday maybe but he's trying to impress and no one's going to impress when you're 2-0 down to West Ham and your team's played in a really laboured manner. And when he played from the start in Paris, that was probably his best game for the club. He was really energetic. And it was a game for that sort of style. I just think he's a player that you've spent £50 million on him. You've not got anyone else at this point. Just give him a run of games until January and see if he improves and settles. Because at the minute, I'd be surprised. I'd have to go and look at the uh, the the games themselves, but I'd be surprised if he'd played five games in a row for United since he joined. I really would. Yeah, I think he started the first three under Mourinho, definitely. But aside from that, I, I can't think of any 
any run of games that he's had since then. Um, uh, and, it, and it is a shame because, you know, and he's not the only United player this has happened to where he's starting to build momentum under a manager and then he's he's left out of the side and then you're almost starting all over again. Yeah. So that, that must be difficult to, to deal with. Um, I remember Memphis <laughs> after the Michelin game. You know the one good game he did have. He didn't start the next game against West Brom away, and you're you're kind of thinking, you know, you need to give these players a chance to build momentum, even if it's not going to work. At least you can say you gave them a go. You know, it was the same with Yanazai at number ten um, at the start of LVG's second season. He started number ten against Bruges against Aston and then Villa. Then he goes to Dortmund straight away. Yeah, exactly. The and then and then you get rid of him. You know, so <laughs> uh, they're just. just so many players are given the opportunity to build momentum and others just don't seem to get that chance and it always seems to be the new signings or the players who are struggling or the young players um, who, who just don't get that chance and, and that's the frustrating thing about it and that's, you know, there is this thing about not criticising Ali because of the structure of the club and because he wasn't given enough signings and, and, and all that's fair enough but, you know, we have to be fair here. You know, Mourinho said the same things and we, we didn't give him any, you know, respite, you know, very critical of Van Hal as well. So we kind of have to judge Ali a bit as well in terms of selection and approach, you know, if we're going to be fair. Um, and I do think that, you know, he, he seems to do, have his favourites um, and other players just seem to struggle to, to break into the team at the moment. And Fred is definitely one of those, especially with Pogba out injured. There's no reason why he shouldn't have started, you know, at least four or five games by now. Um, you know, it wasn't too bad against Astana. It's a game where you have whatever seventy percent possession, but against it's West, nothing game. The Astana game. You make a great point, though. You look at that game on Sunday, and you're going into it, and you think, okay, West Ham, they've got a couple of tasty attackers. They've improved, but. We're not going to get anything. This is from a social perspective. He's got to be thinking, we're not going to get anything from this if we're slow and ponderous because, A, we won't be able to put pressure on a strong defence, a physically strong defence. I mean, Diop was, it didn't have much to do, but he was pretty impressive yet again. And then you think, OK, we'll put, let's not put Matic in there. Let's put Fred next to McTominay and play like the PSG game. Be really get, a, get about them and then see if you because they, they're lacking creative players obviously with the injuries they've got and Rashford wasn't fully fit so you ask those two guys to run and almost like really get amongst the West Ham players and see if that sort of chaos can create you something it just seemed on Sunday that the team selection before the game with Matic it was always going to lead to this slow ponderous performance which as soon as West Ham get the first goal you know that's it mm. unless a chance falls out the sky to them like a penalty which United have got quite a few of this season I might add they were just never going to get anything from that game yeah I, f- I find the Matic situation very weird because it it was very evident that he was a player Ollie had no interest in last season didn't have much interest in him now at the start of this season and he's almost forced his way back into being a, a starter even though the only midfield injury really is Pogba. You know, <laughs> I don't know if any of you saw this. He posted his own stats after the Astana game on, on Twitter. Um, and, you know, this is just the kind of rubbish that we're dealing with now. Um, and I, I do think he's a player who will be moved on next summer. So, you know, why not get Fred and McCombin in there? You know, obviously it's a very flawed midfield, but... I just don't think Matic adds anything to United at the moment. Yeah. Started the Leicester game okay, you know, and gave them a, a, a bit of solidity in there. But, you know, he, if we're talking about Ollie and, 
you know, it's a cycle and he's trying to build for the next four or five years, even though he probably won't get that time anyways. Players like Matic shouldn't really be entertained. Mm. You know, bring them in when they're needed, but he's not somebody you're going to build the team around. He was a disastrous signing as far as I'm concerned, considering the cost and his age. And um, I, I would just rather see United do something different. Obviously, I don't think Garner's ready to go in there yet, but you no. could still start Fred and McTominay. Um, and you know Pereira on the right of a four-two-three-one, which is what they did, or which is where he played on on Sunday. You know, it's it's not great, but it's something at least. Whereas with Matic, I just think uh, I, I don't think United are going to get anywhere with him at the moment. I just want to add one last thing with regards to the midfield, and again, it's the whole web theme of this lack of any idea what to do at United behind the scenes. This Fred situation, you've got a player there who you spent £50 million on, as we've mentioned, and Matic is getting in ahead of him. And Ender's absolutely right. Bang on, Matic will not be there. So we'll not be talking about Matic this time next year, whether he goes in the coming January window, which I don't think is impossible, and, or the summer. So why don't you decide now, OK, Matic isn't going to be here long-term. Let's play Fred, give him the run of games I've been mentioning next to McTominay. Let's see what we've got. And and But what's going to happen is Matic will keep playing these games. There'll be some bad results. There'll be some good results. There'll be some nothing games which people forget have even happened as soon as they've finished. And then it gets to the summer and Matic goes and then United have to buy a midfielder. Yet they don't still really know what they've got in Fred. And then Fred maybe goes on loan somewhere. And, and then he's once you've gone on loan from United, it's very unlikely you're ever going to come back and break into the side. So, But that if you give Fred the 10 games and it doesn't work, then fair enough. You then make that decision. But don't give Matic the 10 games and then still not knowing what you've got in Fred. It's just infuriating that they don't seem to be able to connect off-field planning with on-pitch decisions. And then that's the final link point. And if you had a director of football who hired the coach everyone would be on the same page there and these sort of decisions wouldn't happen. Leds, um, I suppose kind of finishing up on Solskjaer quickly, um, I mean, the book to some degree has to stop with him, but in my view, there's probably no point given the revolving door of managers over the past couple of years to even consider removing him, um, especially just a couple of games into his first full season in charge. But, that won't really squash much of the criticism that he is getting. How long do you think he should be given? I mean, I think the, the kind of the main thing people want is, or a lot of people are suggesting, and I was reading Andy Mitten in The Athletic today, saying that he should get at least two years. Do you think he'll reach two years, Chris? Or do you think um, that his time is a little bit more uh, on the count? Well, Ed Woodward said today that he trusted in what Solskjaer was trying to do and that he backed him completely. So I think he'll probably be gone maybe soon because that's just what happens. Ed Woodward says this and then within a couple of months, his mind's switched. But in terms of what I think should happen, Solskjaer is making mistakes. He's not the elite coach that Manchester United should have hired, but he's not doing as bad. I know the results have been bad. He's not doing any worse than what we've seen before. That's the thing. And I don't think changing him will make any difference. And once you've started this recruitment policy now of these young players, if you do get rid of him, who do you hire? Do you hire Allegri, a big name coach? Then he comes in and says, oh, what's all these young players about? Let's get some experience and build a proper 
um, defence like I had at Juventus. So he'd use Maguire. And then you, you're stuck in a cycle. Then this is again why the director of football hire is so important in 2019 because it's accepted that coaches won't be in jobs long. It's, it's not like the days of Ferguson and Wenger. Everyone knows that. You can't go back to those days. But if you have a director of football who's hiring the coaches, at least then you're going to get a, six, a consistent stream of coaches all acting. Like City aren't going to... When Guardiola decides enough's enough and goes and manages Brazil at the Qatar World Cup, they're not going to hire Sam Allardyce, are they? Or, or Tony Pulis. They're going to probably go for someone who plays a similar style to suit the players they've got. If these bad run of results at United continue to Christmas and Solskjaer is uh, dismissed, who, if they hire then a coach who doesn't want the players, they but like he thinks, oh, Daniel James is a bit young, not ready, then what do United do? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. And, um, uh, I was debating this with a few people on Twitter today who were saying he mightn't last till December. I think first thing is that they'll be in the Europa till at least February. Um, so there's no way as long as that Champions League uh, possibility is there that they'll change the coach the next thing is uh, as Chris was saying if you do bring in somebody new uh, they'll definitely want to spend money um, and are United willing to back a new manager like they did in Valhalla's first season like they did in Mourinho's first season they didn't really in terms of net spend which is a phrase I hate anyways um, back Ollie heavily this summer I think if, if Lukaku wasn't sold they wouldn't have signed Maguire anyway I think they're well aware that that money was coming in so you're talking 60 odd net spend there um, so I, I think they have to stick with them till at least the summer anyways um, uh, and, and whatever happens after that uh, who knows I mean I mean, who else would they bring in that, that, that would be my question um, there's no one available that's, yeah. that's it Allegri is the only one who's readily available. Everyone else at clubs, maybe yeah. Tuckle isn't quite happy at PSG, but you're not going to get him out of there anytime soon. Yeah, I, I do think it, it looked set up to bring, or at least have a go at bringing Pochettino in when Mourinho was, was sacked and Ali was brought in as, as the interim. His contract at Spurs is very complicated for clubs because he has a huge backroom staff as well. He'd want to take all them with him. You know, it's a huge expense to bring Pochettino in. That's what put Madrid off him as well. Perez was apparently very keen to bring him in before he signed that new Spurs contract. Um, so I, I don't see that as being a possibility. Um, you know, <laughs> Jardim will probably, if Monaco lose tonight against Nice, he'll be available. <laughs> um, and he ha- will, he then, will he then be at Monaco again by Christmas? Yeah, yeah, he'll probably be at Monaco by Christmas or, you know, New Year at least. Um, he has kind of, he has that profile. He, he went to... Sporting, bred young players in, finished second, I think, brought through a lot of young players at Monaco, but his reputation is kind of taking a hit week after week now as, as Monaco continued to stumble. So I think if, if you wanted Jardim, you would have gone for him when you sacked Mourinho. So I don't think that's a possibility. Allegri, he, there's no way he would entertain, you know, the philosophy, if you like, of bringing all these young players through. So I, I think, you know, they've kind of made their bed and they've to line it for at least at least next summer and, and probably beyond. I, I just can't see. I think beyond that as well. I think they've got to. When you make the decision to go with those three players in the summer and let the players go who they've let go, you've got to stick with him because otherwise you're just going to be in a mess. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't mind changes behind the scenes from a coaching perspective. I do think United need a bit more experience there. 
you know, it's it's McKenna, Carrick and Phelan and Solskjaer, um, which is fine, but they just don't look like a well-coached team at the moment. I mean, they must have the worst set pieces I've ever seen. It's, you know, I mean, I've, <laughs> I used to go to Maryland Park to watch Go United as a kid and I've seen better corners there than I've seen at Old Trafford in the past three years, you know. So I, I, I wouldn't mind potentially changes there behind the scenes, sticking with who's there, but maybe bringing in some experienced coaches as well. We know that certainly under Sir Alex, that the coaches were hugely influential, you know, on a day-to-day basis in terms of um, how the team was actually coached. So I wouldn't be against potentially changes there, but in terms of the manager, you know, I I think Ollie's going to get a good run at it. Okie doke, lads. Really appreciate you joining the show. Um, there's been a few dull moments uh, in regards to Manchester United over the years, and I'm sure um, there'll be an interesting months and seasons ahead, so uh, we'll hopefully get you on at some stage. Uh, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Enda. No worries. Yeah, no problem. Thanks.